Good morning. We've come to the end of this series on Great Cloud of Witnesses. Uh, you know how this series began, right? Last year, I put a bunch of autobiographies at home so that my kids would read. And then my son asked me, you know, how come all of them die, you know? Martyr for the faith. Actually, only one uh, that he read. So I make sure I pick those I picked uh, in this series uh, didn't martyr for their faith, okay? And of course, uh, today we're going to talk about John Sung. And at least there's an Asian in that series. And probably one of the most important ones uh, in our context in Singapore. So let us go to the Lord and the Word of Prayer as we begin. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray that you convict our hearts. We see Christ lifted up. And Father, you'll be glorified. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. John Song was born in 1901 in Fujian, China. 1920, he went to the US to study. And he didn't even know a single English word. But within five and a half years, he got his bachelor's, master's, and doctorate. Two years later, he returned to China determined to be an evangelist. He was greatly used by God to shake up the church of China and Southeast Asia. Some call him the Wesley of China and even the Apostle of China. One even called him the greatest preacher of the 20th century. William Schubert, an American missionary, he said, I've heard all the great preachers and evangelists of the 20th century, from R.A. Torrey to Billy Sunday to Fosdick and even Billy Graham. But John Sung's pupit prowess surpasses them all. He was 10 years younger than me, but he was my spiritual teacher. In 1931, I hosted him in my house for three weeks, and in that three weeks, what I learned from him was more than what I learned in three years while in seminary. Who is this man? What's the secret behind the man and the message? You know, my previous senior pastor in the States, he's a missiologist, means he researches into missions, and he wrote his, a book, published a book on John Song. But my interest about this, about him, uh, went back further because the first 10 years of my Christian life, I was in a church whose founders were all converted in John Song's revival meetings in the 30s and 40s. And when they share about what happened in those years, the repentance, the tears of joy and sorrow, it was so vivid as if it just happened yesterday. What is the secret behind John Song? Because that is the key to a victorious Christian life. A victorious life of a Christ follower. The key can be found in John chapter 3. From John 3, we'll see, John Songs tells us that man's works do not even come close to the works of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit does not work, all the efforts of man will come to naught. The key is the work of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 3, verse 1 to 15, we'll see a spiritual reality. Secondly, a spiritual transformation. And then finally, a response. A spiritual reality, a search for it, a spiritual transformation, and then our response. Let's open the Word of God, John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Who is Nicodemus? Now he's a Pharisee, which means 
he treats the law of God seriously and he knows it well. He's a ruler of the Jews, meaning within the Jewish society, he had authority and he was respectable. At that time, Jesus was always rebuking these leaders and so they were at loggerheads and yet Nicodemus came to find Jesus. And it's noted in scripture that he came by night. Why? Well, because he didn't want his fellow colleagues to know that he was going to see Jesus. So the question is, why would he risk his reputation and his place in society to see Jesus? You see, Nicodemus had a religion. He knew the law. He probably sang the Shema twice a day. He tithed. He kept the Sabbath and the feast. He had a religion. But he didn't have a spiritual reality. So when he heard Jesus preached, when he saw what Jesus did, he was attracted to Jesus to the extent that he was willing to put everything at risk just to come to listen to Jesus. And the Lord Jesus told him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus asked, do you have a spiritual reality? And that's the question we have to ask, answer for ourselves today. Do you have a religion? We come to church, we offer our tithe, we pray before we eat. But do you have a spiritual reality? The presence of God that grips your heart, that you know your heart is strangely warmed, that you're drawn to Jesus. You see, a religion doesn't mean just organized spiritual activities. What I mean by it is that we place ourselves in the center of this spiritual pursuit such that we think by our own efforts, our morality, we can please God. That by following certain rituals, obeying certain things, we can manipulate such that God will give us what we want. Whereas a spiritual reality is having a relationship with God, a relationship allows us to struggle. There are highs and lows, ebbs and flows. There are times when we wonder where is God, but you know, we always can turn back. We're always drawn back to God. We're attracted to Him. There is a spiritual reality. Because it's easy to say, I believe God loves me. But does it grip your heart? If not, when we face criticism or we're rejected by others, you know, we'll be devastated. Why people don't like me? You know, but when... That truth grips our heart is different because we know we are still loved by God. If we have a spiritual reality, we want to read God's word and it causes our hearts to be strangely warmed. We worship God and while we cannot see Him, we sense His presence in our lives. If we have a spiritual reality, we are willing to surrender our lives to God even though we will struggle. If we have a spiritual reality, we will do radical things for God. What radical things? Well, Jesus said himself, the kingdom of God is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. Upon finding the one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. I mean, this is radical. You sell everything you have just for faith, just for relationship with God. Would you do that? Do we have a spiritual reality or do we just have a religion. You know, when John Song was in high school, he prayed that God would give him an opportunity to go to the US. But his father was a preacher, and so they were really poor. Suddenly, one relative came to find them, and he said, you know, I realize I owe your father some money. 
You know, I don't know why I suddenly remember and now I'll give you back. And that amount at that time, because of the favorable exchange rate, he was able to buy one ticket to the US. So when he arrived in Ohio, he had nothing but the clothes on his back. And over the next five and a half years, he studied in the day and worked at night and slept only a few hours a day. Put himself through school with three diplomas and even brought his brother over. Now, maybe because of that, it took a toll on his life. Eventually, he died young at the age of 42. When he was studying, he was struggling. He says, I don't know if I can be a famous chemist and a well-known preacher at the same time. Learning from history, I'm sure a person must focus on one field in order to succeed. Now that I want to strive fully in the field of chemistry, there's still the pull to take up religious work as a lifelong vocation. I fear I might fail in both. Yet, I've always sensed the calling of Heavenly Father from young till now. Why would the Heavenly Father call me to be a revivalist and still bestow on me such a strong interest to learn chemistry. He knew from young that he was called. He has participated in his father's work. But when he was studying, you know, he realized that this is something he's good at. Five years earlier, he came to the US penniless. And five years later, you know, he was a relative well-known scientist. He was popular among his peers because of his great intellect. I mean, we take, what, three, four years to do a bachelor's. He, he took five years to do all three, you know. Not only that, with the salary he earned, he reasoned with God. He said, with 75% of my salary, you know, I can give to the church and I can support many pastors. If I live off the remaining 25%, I'm still considered well off. But something happened in his life. And so eventually, two years after he graduated, he went back to China. And along the way, on the boat, at the time they were still travelling by boat, he took all his diplomas, all his awards, and threw them into the sea. He kept only his PhD so that he can give it to his parents. And as he threw them overboard, he said, the devil can never tempt me again. There goes my pride. Why did he do this? Because there was a spiritual reality a relationship with God that drew him and he knew it's worth it. And that is why we need to ask ourselves, do we just have a religion that we are comfortable, we feel safe, do not need to take risk, are willing to give it up? Or do we have a spiritual reality that our hearts are strangely warmed they were willing to do anything just to draw close to God because we know it is worth it. Friends, Jesus came not to renovate our hearts, but to transform it, to give us a total spiritual transformation. And so in verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? He says, How to be born again? Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. This is spiritual things. You don't have to go back to your mother's womb and be born. 
Do not marvel that I tell you we must be born again. Because you know it. Don't, don't be so surprised. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everybody who is born of the Spirit. See, you might not understand, but it's like the wind, right? We don't know where it comes from, but it blows, you can feel it. Especially now, Singapore's so hot. Wow, when the breeze comes, you say, whoa. You don't know where it comes from, where it's going, but you know it's real. And that is what it is to be born again. The work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And Nicodemus once again says, how can it be? And Jesus says, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? He says, you know the Old Testament. You should understand this concept of being born by water and spirit. Where? Well, when I look at Jeremiah 31, the new covenant passages, Israel and Judah have sinned against God repeatedly and God through the prophet Jeremiah said, I will make a new covenant. I'll put the law within their hearts, not the law on the tablets. Ezekiel 36, the prophet says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. No longer a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. In the Old Testament, Holy Spirit comes upon the people. They do God's work and the Holy Spirit leaves. But the new covenant era, which includes all of us, the Spirit of God comes within us, indwells in us permanently. And so when Apostle Paul said this in 2 Corinthians, he says, you to the believers are a letter of Christ cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. Now you notice these repeated phrase, right? He uses these ideas from Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31. What he's saying is this. He's saying that, you know, we have been born again. We have been born by the, the Spirit. We are now new covenant believers. Messiah has come. There is a spiritual transformation because friends, our humanity's problem is not one of the head, it's not lack of knowledge or lack of education. It is because of our sin nature. In the early 20th century, optimism about humanity was at a high. After the Enlightenment and Industrial Revolution, you know, we feel that with education and advancement in science, we can solve all our problems. And then, World War I happened. And people were shocked, you know. It's just, we are now civilized people. How can we do such things to one another? And then World War II happened. And that was the nail in the coffin of human optimism. We realized that there's something wrong with us. Ernest Becker, a Pulitzer Prize winning author in his book, Escape from Evil. He's a non-believer. He said, I started in the 50s believing in sociology and human planning. We could deal with the problems of society because human beings were not that flawed. But towards the end of his life, he says, there is something wrong with us. There's something evil in us. The problems are not going to be dealt with simply with social planning. What's wrong with us? The Germans, something wrong with them, right? The Japanese. Maybe today we say the Russians. And we begin to think some people are more wicked by nationality. Some people are more wicked by culture. Some people are more inferior. But you know, when we begin to think this way, we have to be careful. 
Because that's exactly how the Germans thought about the Jews. The Japanese thought about the Asians. And perhaps today you can say, the Russian president thought about Ukrainians. My point is this. The problem is not with different cultures or different nationalities. It's all our problems. We all have the same problem because it's a problem of the human nature, our sin nature. And that is why when Jesus came, He didn't come to renovate our hearts, you know, to make us a bit more moral, a bit better. Jesus is not interested. He came to tear down everything and to make things new. That is why it's spiritual transformation. Otherwise, you know, we will just be doing all these religious activities. They are religious decorations of an empty heart. A heart never touched by the Spirit of God. A heart untouched by the love of God. A heart unchanged by the Word of God. So friends, we may wear crosses on our necks, but we will not be willing to bear our crosses. We may give of our offerings, but we will not offer our lives. We may have many Bibles at home or on our apps, but they remain unopened and unread and our lives unchanged. So the question I ask you, do you have a religion? Or do you have a spiritual reality? Scripture says of Jesus, John the Baptist said to his disciples, I will baptize you with water, but he, Messiah, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Future tense, haven't happened yet. In Acts, Jesus resurrected before he ascended. He said, you know, you heard that John was baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Haven't happened yet, future tense. 1 Corinthians, Paul says, for by one spirit we were all baptized in the past. You see, John the Baptist, when he says, Jesus will baptize with water, I will baptize with water, Jesus baptized the Holy Spirit. He's saying that this is the one we've been waiting for. The new covenant that talks about the Spirit, baptized with the Spirit to be born again. Jesus is the one. It happened on the day of the Pentecost when Holy Spirit came and indwelt in the church, beginning the new covenant era. So when we talk about baptism of the Holy Spirit or to be born again, they are synonymous. It happened once for us, is with the moment we believe in Jesus, we were born again. Happened once in the past. The Holy Spirit is seals in us, indwells in us permanently. We need the gifts of the Spirit to serve. But it must be balanced by the fruit of the Spirit. It's not just about the spectacular work that we do, but the changes in our lives. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. And this list is not exhaustive. What it's saying is that we need to balance not just the gifts that people can see, but your inner life. And then finally, filled with the Spirit. You see, we are baptized with the Spirit the moment you're born again, becoming Christians. But every day of our life, we need the work of the Spirit. That is the key behind John Song's life. We need the work of the Spirit, and we call this the filling of the Holy Spirit. Of course, the main text is from Ephesians 5. While baptism of the Holy Spirit is always in the, it was talking about something in the past tense, this is a present continuous tense. It says, be filled continually. Contrasting, don't be drunk. It means don't be controlled by wine, but controlled by the Spirit continually. We seek it. 
As a result of that, you'll sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Colossians 3 says, when the word of Christ fills us richly, we will sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So you see the parallel? When we are filled with the Spirit, it means we are yielded to the Word of God, indwelling in us. And you study the word filled of the Spirit. Okay, not many times it occurs in the New Testament. But there's another word that occurs that is full of the Spirit. And so you go and do a Google search on the New Testament and you go and study all the verses in context. Essentially, it means, firstly, short term for service. When the people are going to preach God's word, when they're facing death, like Stephen before he was stoned. He was described as being full of the Spirit. But there's also a long-term effect for sanctification, for joy, for unity, for growth in character. Now, why am I saying this? Because when Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again, it applies to us. But remember, it was before the coming of the Spirit. Today, as believers, what we seek for is to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God that gives us this spiritual reality, a spiritual transformation. You know, when John Song graduated, he had several job offers. Eventually, he decided to go back to China to teach. But before he could sign the contract, he said, you know, his whole body just froze up and he couldn't sign it. He heard God telling him, you cannot do this. You belong to me. From young, you have been dedicated to me and I have led you all this way and now you must serve me. So he changed his plan, plans. He decided to enroll to a seminary in New York. Now he obeyed God's leading. He went to seminary. I mean, his professors loved him, you know, because he had such uh, intellectual uh, abilities and they were excited that someone with a high level of degree, uh, a PhD holder, a well-known chemist, was in their midst. This was supposed to be the best time of his life, shouldn't it? but it was also the darkest period of his time. See, union at that time was at the heart of the theological divide and theological war between the conservatives and the liberals. Okay, union seminary was well known. John Song explained, he says that what they thought was, if you cannot expound the Bible philosophically, you can try proving it with science. If you cannot prove it with science, just designate it as allegory. The best way to preach the Bible is to apply personal psychology to it. And John Stone began to embrace the whole philosophy of a social gospel. Meaning, do the good deeds, but don't believe in all the miracles, the resurrection, no need. And he's, he had such intellectual abilities, he was bored with his studies. So he studied all other religions, and he felt that they were all the same. He wanted to start his own religion. He began to doubt the power of prayer, even though he has experienced many answered prayers. Eventually, he spiraled into a depression, had paranoia. One night in his dorm room, he was reading the book of Revelations and then suddenly he just ran out in the corridors screaming, God has appeared to me. Jesus spoke to me. The next day he went to school. His professor was Harry Fosdick, the preeminent theologian of his, his time. And he called him and says, you are of the devil. Your teaching caused me to lose my faith. You should stop teaching. You know what happened to John Song? He was committed to an asylum. Locked into a mental hospital for 193 days. And in that 193 days, he read the Bible cover to cover 40 times. 
The word of God gripped his heart and was convinced he had to return home to be an evangelist. You see, there was a spiritual transformation. Whether is it he was baptized by the Spirit or was filled with the Spirit, there was a spiritual reality. He returned to the faith of his childhood. He returned to the God of his father. He returned to the Savior of his life. And I ask each one of us, do you have a religion? Or do you have a spiritual reality? How then should we respond? Why? Why are we able to have this spiritual change? Jesus continues to tell us, Nicodemus said to him, how can this be? He says, you are a teacher, you are a Pharisee, you know the Old Testament, you should understand. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, but you don't accept. If I told you earthly things, you do not believe. How will you believe if I told you heavenly things? I tell you things that you can understand, born again, but you cannot accept. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man himself. He says, I know the truth. I'm telling you, this earthly thing, but you don't understand. Then how? He says, never mind, but you should know this. So he told him another Old Testament story. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in, will in him have eternal life. This story was the Israelites in the wilderness. They were complaining about God, about God and God sent poisonous serpents to bite them. So people died and they cried out to God. And God told Moses, build a statue, a bronze statue of a serpent and lift it up. The very thing that caused, was causing them to die, look at it. All you need is a look of faith and you will be healed. And then Jesus says, so will the Son of Man be lifted up. Friends, when Jesus Christ was lifted up on the cross, He bore the sins of the whole world so that you and I, we can be forgiven. We stand reconciled with God, not because of our morality or goodness, but because of what Christ has done. And why did Jesus do this? Verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This is one of the most common verses in the Bible. We are so familiar with it. But do you know the text that came before? It's because of God's love that His Son bore the sins of the world and was raised up. And it's because of that that we can have this spiritual transformation of the Spirit. We can have relationship with God because Jesus sacrificed His life. How then should we respond? This week is our prayer meeting, P3 night. You know, we have always prayer meetings and uh, ever since COVID, of course, we've made several changes. But last few months, we actually come back on site. But I've also noticed that not all of us are coming. Let us come to seek God together. Especially for this coming prayer meeting. It's on the Song of Songs, which is our preaching series in June. To understand the love of God for us, to let the love of God once again fill our hearts. So I urge you to come. 
Secondly, if you don't have a spiritual reality for the sake of your eternal soul, go back today, close the door of your room, kneel down and pray. And do not rise until you are certain in your hearts that you have the Spirit of God in you. Otherwise, otherwise we spend all our lives doing religious things but we don't have a relationship with God. A reality that draws us towards God, that attracts us towards Him, even though we don't understand, that our hearts are strangely warmed. Consecrate ourselves to Him. And that is the key to a victorious Christian life. A victorious Christian life doesn't mean we don't have struggles. A victorious Christian life doesn't mean we have no problems. A victorious Christian life doesn't mean that, you know, we know what is going to happen in the future. It means we have victory in Christ already. It means even if we fall down, we can turn back. It means we always have a second chance, no matter what we're struggling with, our marriages, our studies, you know, our work. When John Song returned to China, he gave his PhD diploma to his parents and explained to them his plans. His father, who was a preacher, scolded him. He says, you should be working to support your siblings. His mother tried to persuade him with tears. He said, your father has been a preacher for 30 years and we have no savings. You know, I wash clothes for other families to support the family. Don't you consider my happiness? And John Song said, the ambitious John had died in America. The one who lives now lives for Christ. And you know, God used him greatly. God gave him a revelation. He says, you will serve me for 15 years, five periods of three years, and the last three years were a period of the tomb. And when you look at his life, it's exactly what happened. The last three years, he was bedridden and all he could do was pray. And he died at the age of 42. But meanwhile, wherever he went, God used him greatly. Not, not all of us will end up like John Song, but all of us have a similar destiny. God has a plan in our lives, a destiny for us to fulfill, to respond by faith. And if we are convinced of that, then whatever we are facing right now, whatever struggles you have, whatever doubts you have, you know God is with you. And so we can respond victoriously. When John Song went to Nanchang, he preached there for a week, three sermons a day. He preached as if the house was on fire. He paced on the, the pulpit until all the pain was worn off. After every message, he would go back to his hotel room, take off his clothes, because he's covered with sweat, put on a new one, and continue. There were many communists uh, dispersed in the crowd trying to create disturbance, but they too were converted. There were many pastors and missionaries in that city who were born again. Almost all the students in the city in that week got converted. Then he came to Singapore. This is in 1944 in Straits Times. The people described it as a Pentecost. Lives changed. And even years later, you still see the fruit of his ministry in our country. This was a man who was used by God. It was simply the work of the Holy Spirit and you and I, we too, can have this 
reality of a relationship with God. Because it's not about His faith. It is about Jesus Christ. Earlier in my pastor's voice, I shared this Professor King from Vanderbilt University. He was trying to explain our fascination with celebrities. He says there's tension between their ordinariness and imagined extraordinariness. Meaning, they are like us. We see, eh, they are like us. Then they are also very different. So we are inspired. Say we have got hope. We can be like them. And hence, it aspires us to be more than what we can be. And it is my hope that through this series, a great cloud of witnesses, we see these extraordinary men and women of faith and we realize they are just ordinary people like us. What's extraordinary, friends, isn't their faith, isn't their personality, it is their God. And that would shape our imagination of what it means to be a Christ follower. We look at Hudson Taylor, you know, if Jesus is Christ is not the Lord of all, He's not Lord of all. Lord at all. We look at Eric Little, who experienced the pleasure of God when he was running because he wanted to honour God and God will honour him. God takes care of all the outcome. We look at Amy Carmichael, a sister in Christ who suffered greatly for Jesus. And a word to all our sisters out there, they can certainly suffer more than us men. If you read about her life, she suffered greatly, but as a result, she was greatly fruitful. Last week, we saw George Muller open your mouth wide and just ask, and God provides abundantly. And by the way, when Pastor Leonard talked about, you know, don't just pray for GCB and Ferrari, pray for more. He's not asking you to pray for two GCB and two Ferraris, okay? He meant pray for greater and better things, spiritual things, things for the kingdom of God. And his context was, the souls, they are moving in, in those new blocks. And today we look at John Song, man whose life was marked by a spiritual reality. What about us? The series Great Cloud of Witnesses came from Hebrew 12. It is an image about a stadium, you imagine, with all the saints that have gone before us, cheering us on. Come on, you can do it. And we are encouraged so that one day we will also be sitting in those stands cheering on those who come behind us. But in the context of Hebrews 12, the main point was not those who are running. But verse 2 when it says, keeping our eyes on Jesus who is the author and finisher of our faith. And friends, the beginning of a journey of faith is Jesus. The end point of our journey of faith is Jesus. The everyday point of our journey of faith is Jesus. It's Jesus Jesus and Jesus again. Let us pray. I'd like to give us some time to respond to the Word of God. As the Spirit prompts you throughout this whole month, all the things you have listened to, let us respond in prayer to the Lord.